0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Tonight's show is about the New South Wales election.
2: Mike Baird is right. This is a critical 21st century election. It's about who gets to make the decisions about our future. It's about where the wealth gets distributed. It's about creating jobs in a clean, green economy. It's about making sure that every person in New South Wales can be part of the wealth that will be generated by the transition to a clean, innovative, high-tech economy.
1: Since Labor got into government in Victoria, they've ripped up Ted Bailey's anti-wind farm laws. Those laws cost Victoria's many, Victorians many jobs and a chance of climate action. So things are moving. Then we had the Queensland election, where a swing to Labour there was partly caused by thousands of solar citizens voting for the parties who promoted renewable energy. Now, renewable energy in the New South Wales election is somewhat of a motherhood. They're talking, all of them are talking about a renewable energy target, a state's renewable energy target, even if the federal one doesn't come through. But the most hotly argued issue is the selling off of the poles and wires. The Liberal government wants to sell off the poles and wires and pull in, I think, $20 billion, which they can use in other uh, projects. But those are state assets which Victorians will know very well what that means. Uh, I can't think of how many people from the Latrobe Valley I've met who regret deeply the privatisation of the SEC when you had it. So now that's the threat in New South Wales. You will go to a candidates forum for the seat of Sydney and you'll see the different opinions on that and their different positions. In New South Wales, the Labour and the coalition candidates both seem fairly happy to have a state renewable energy energy target of 20% by 2020. But I would like you to consider, is this too little, too late? Think of the ACT. They're going to have 90% in five years time and South Australia which is much bigger much more infrastructure there they will have 50% renewable energy in the next 10 years so 20% in a huge huge population like New South Wales that's really too modest too unambitious we will hear from a candidates forum for the seat of Sydney then we'll hear from the ALP shadow minister for energy Adam Searle and the Greens MP who is already in the uh, parliament here, John K. The first speaker is Patrice Pandaleos. She's a Liberal Party candidate for the seat of Sydney. She's all for selling off the poles and wires because it will bring in $20 billion, which they feel, the Liberals feel, that they can use on projects such as the West Connex Circular Road. Notice when she talks about uh, renewable energy how she still has reservations about it and I think this is what we're up against when we're talking to Liberal MPs they still think that the lights might all go off because the sun doesn't shine all night that sort of idea is implicit in what she says so tune into that
3: I'm very passionate about any opportunity for more renewable energies uh, energy rather but I have to be frank None of us want to see increased electricity prices. So I think, and you know, definitely for us in the inner city, we may have a slightly higher disposable income. There's lots of families that struggle every single day with their electricity prices as it is. So, so long as we can find that balance between uh, renewable energies and still uh, still going home and um, not, not seeing uh, much higher bills, I'm all for it. The other thing I would like to say is it needs to be a reliable source of energy because we need to make sure that when we go home and we turn the lights on, they, they actually do turn on. So we need to find that balance of, of, with, with sort of the right amount of renew, renewable energies versus, uh, versus uh, what we currently have. Of the poles and wires to free up $20 billion, which we'll put towards infrastructure. $20 billion is, you know, what it will take to get this, this state up to the point it should have been many, many years ago.
1: After that, we'll hear Alex Greenwich, who is an independent. He is the sitting member for the seat of Sydney. He's very on side. He's also uh, wanting to have a state's renewable energy uh, target, but it's still a modest target of 20%.
4: This is a, a really important question, obviously, for the future of our state and also, obviously, for the future of, of our nation. Uh, We've seen that the federal Abbott government has repealed the price on carbon um, and uh, has also had a number of very concerning signs about how they're going to deal with the renewable um, energy sector. This could either continue to disappoint us or it could provide New South Wales with an opportunity. New South Wales does need to have a stronger renewable energy target and we were also the first state with our own um, with, with our own uh, emissions trading scheme. And I'd like to see New South Wales bring that back. I've called for it to come back. Um, I think there is a, totally a, a whole space here in which New South Wales can lead the nation uh, and look forward to hopefully being re-elected and working with my colleagues across the parliament to achieve that
1: followed by the Edwina Lloyd from the ALP. She doesn't want to sell off public assets, the electricity poles and wires, and she feels that they are, have been left to us in public
3: trust. Um, Labor have recommitted. They've committed before and they're committed again, committing again to a renewable target of 20%, and I think that's a fantastic start. the Greens
1: candidate, Chris Brentin, and he's all for 100% renewable energy. And this is a a bill that's been put in front of the New South Wales several times by John Kay, but it has been pretty much stomped on by the other parties. And I will later... Speak to the ALP, uh, sitting Shadow Minister for Industry, Adam Searle, about that. Why why are they offering such a modest target, 20% by 2020? And why have they stomped on the much more realistic 100% renewable energy transition to that by 2050, which the Greens uh, have put out?
2: As as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we really need to be moving this state. And I think we can lead the way to being powered by 100% renewable energies. I think that target is achievable by 2030. We can start phasing out coal, coal-powered fire stations until that time. But that target of achieving 100% renewable energies by 2030 is achievable. Like I said, it's economically viable. We know that electricity power is cheaper than wood power and it will also open up a whole raft of renewable energy jobs. Now, it was in 2013 that I think the University of New South Wales did a study and uh, there's conservative estimates that there are approximately 70,000 Renewable energy jobs across the state. Now, if you compare that to something like, say, coal seam gas, where the estimates are about 4,000, it really shows you that we have an untapped market here in renewable energies. Mike Baird is right. This is a critical 21st century election. It's about who gets to make the decisions about our future. It's about where the wealth gets distributed. It's about creating jobs in a clean, green economy. It's about making sure. That every person in New South Wales can be part of the wealth that will be generated by the transition to a clean, innovative, high tech economy. All your promises have been broken now. Just like
1: I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now.
5: I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. you
6: and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. We're doing a bit of a retrospective on the New South Wales election tonight. Uh, uh, the result has come in, as you all would probably know, so uh, Liberal Nationals have been returned with bad, But the Greens have had a good win. They've won three lower house lower house seats Newtown, Balmain and Ballina and I understand that the results for Lismore aren't in yet. Um, That might have changed by by this time, five o'clock on a Monday. But um, yes, so the Greens have done pretty well, particularly in that area uh, over the issue of cold seam gas. Vivian brings us Adam Searle up next.
1: I'm at the New South Wales Parliament and our guest is Adam Searle from the Labour Party. He's the Shadow Minister for Energy, Industrial Relations and Small Business. So thanks for speaking to us, Adam. I know the election time is very busy, four days to go, and I appreciate you speaking to the Beyond Zero Emissions listeners.
0: Uh, My pleasure.
1: Look, if, if you get into government, will you follow Daniel Andrews down in Victoria who has started to encourage the wind farm industry in New South Wales?
0: Look, absolutely. One of our uh, key policies is uh, on clean energy uh, with a focus on jobs, investment and facing the future. Uh, We believe that renewables need to be a a higher proportion of the overall energy consumption mix. Uh, It's cleaner, it's better for the environment, but also uh, we think that energy security is best achieved from getting our energy from a variety of sources. Uh, At present, we are largely dependent on coal-fired and uh, gas-fired power stations. Um, We think renewables need to be encouraged. We support uh, the Commonwealth Renewable Energy Target. We hope the federal opposition and the federal government reach a landing to give certainty to investors because although the legislation uh, remains in place... Uh, the rampant hostility of the Abbott government has, has seen a flight of capital yes. overseas. So Australia has become backwater for that's renewables. Right. Uh, that's most unfortunate.
1: But just focusing on wind energy, I remember interviewing Brad Hazard a few years ago when the new wind farm regulations came in. He said, oh, it's going to be consultation, consultation, but it's really put a stymie on new wind farms. And in Victoria, it was an absolute draconian sort of uh, legislation around that. So mm. are you planning to loosen up the rulings around putting up new wind farms so that, you know, c- communities can just go ahead and have them? Well,
0: what we say is that New South Wales Labor, if elected to government, we will unlock the tens of millions of dollars of projects that have been stalled by the coalition government's uh, hostility to to wind farm. Uh, we will facilitate a fair go for the wind industry. We note that the industry is the fastest-growing, most mature and cheapest renewable energy source. We, we don't think wind farms should be... Uh, should be singled out for harsher treatment we think <laughs> that uh, wind farms should be subject to the usual planning laws for mm. developments of the applicable size and scale we think the current system of, of guidelines which i think are still dr- marked draft which leaves everybody in, in the worst yeah. of all worlds they're very hostile to um to to wind farms uh their status is unclear uh, councils haven't Uh, taken up the challenge to regulate Mm. it properly themselves we think there needs to be a lot of clarity to give certainty to the industry but also to residents i mean residents shouldn't just have wind farms springing up willy-nilly next to them Uh, they should have all the same sort of rights that they do in regard to any other kind of development so we will regularize that as part of our clean energy policy which uh, was released last week
1: fantastic well um, what about a state-based renewable energy target? I think a lot of people have been rather disgusted by the federal government just creating uncertainty about any new investment. We've been waiting for that decision for a long time. Mm. So can, you, um, can the state get around that by having a state-based renewable target?
0: Well, of course, the last Labor government did set a policy target of 20% of the energy we consume in this state to be from renewable sources by 2020. Yeah. Uh, the current coalition government has paid lip service and has adopted that target yeah. but hasn't really done anything to to progress things. Yeah. I think we're still at about 12%, maybe 13 yeah. Uh, a New South Wales Labor Government will uh, legislate the target, which will give government, we think, first of all, a greater incentive to pull its finger out and mm-hmm. do more, but secondly, to give government uh, a lot more moral suasion when we deal with the industry, when we deal with consumers, and we try and uh, use uh, our unique leverage position to encourage Uh, the growth and development of renewables. In our clean energy policy, we we set out a 10-point plan uh, whereby we hope to encourage uh, the uh, development and consumption of more renewable energy uh, in this state but uh, over think, the next four years.
1: Just, uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think 20% is too little too late. The ACT is aiming to have 90%. South Australia is aiming to, for 50%. Okay, well, the Greens see. had a bill in Parliament here for 100%, which is what Beyond Zero Emissions sure. has printed the blueprint about. Why not a more ambitious target? You know, I'd like to hear something stronger from you.
0: Well, uh, everybody seems to think that 20% by 2020 is a reasonable target. The question yeah, is, but, uh, what are the targets beyond 2020? Yeah. Now, that is a conversation to have over the next few years target. when we see... Because let's face it, if we don't get to 20% by <laughs> 2020, there's no point saying, oh, let's have a 50% target no. or oh, let's have a 90% no. target. If you can't get to 20%, you are not mm. going to get beyond. So we don't resile from our 20% target. Uh, I'm personally open to a more ambitious target... But let's see whether we can't get to twenty percent first, because that's got to be the base.
1: Yeah, well, I think the determination behind it's needed. Well, it's
0: only five years away, yep. but there is so much to do to even get to twenty percent. Um, so that's my first policy target. Okay. Um, it may be more modest than other people would like, but as I said, if we can't get to twenty percent by twenty twenty, we ain't getting to fifty.
1: Look, Luke Foley has promised solar power for every school. I saw that in the paper the other day. And this would also boost the solar uh, small businesses. I went to lots of forums they had around the state and in Victoria too, the Solar Council. Um, And there were lots of small businesses, people in Rockdale and just local areas who were just wanting more certainty for their business to go ahead and have more opportunities to install solar. I wonder what certainty you plan to give them.
0: Well, we we will do a number of things uh, to uh, support uh, solar power in New South Wales. Uh, The first thing we will do is we will provide consumer protection for those people who put solar on their roofs, uh, ensuring a fair tariff for those who sell excess energy back to the grid. Now, at the moment, uh, electricity companies are not obligated to pay anything for the extra energy generated from people's roofs. Uh, and that gives the giant energy companies a free ride on the backs yeah. of households yeah. that have made the investment to, def- uh, to reduce their power mm. bills but also to make a contribution to clean energy supply and to reduce our dependence on uh, more traditional forms of energy. So um, we will require, by law, that there be a fair minimum payment for energy fed back into the grid from household solar generation. This will be set by IPART with a rigorous mandate given by the law to ensure uh, a fair treatment is given to to, the, to people in that situation. We will also, as you indicated, uh, put solar on the roofs of the approximately 1,700 uh, public and uh, public uh, primary schools and high schools. Mm-hmm. About 500 schools uh, were able to put solar on their roofs courtesy of the Rudd-Gillard That's Federal right, Labor yeah. Governments. Yeah. That program was cut by the Abbott government. We understand that some schools have been able to fundraise or access various other forms of funding and have put solar on their roofs, and that's good. Uh, We will do an audit to see what schools uh, do not have it. Mm -hmm. We think there's about 1,700, um, and we will make sure that they have uh, uh, systems put on their roofs so that they can make a contribution to clean energy generation, that they can reduce uh, the the energy consumption of, of their school, and that savings can be put back into the services in those local schools.
1: Okay, so schools, anything more like uh, public uh, public buildings? Uh, I mean, well, in other countries they've in, they've been rolling this out, like Germany's the sure. example we all look to, so that, sure. you know, they have big targets and they just make it easy and they lease solar power to people who can't afford to put it on or who are in rented accommodation, that sort of thing, some more innovative things.
0: Well, let's start with the schools. Yeah. I think once we, we roll it out over the 1,700 schools, we can certainly look at other governmental public buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things we're going to do, which is not about solar, but which is about energy efficiency and reducing energy consumption, is, is, is in regard to hospital lighting. Oh, yes. uh, hospitals are huge consumers yeah. of electricity. Um, uh, we will replace inefficient, inefficient fluorescent and incandescent lighting with high-efficiency LED lighting throughout the New South Wales public hospital system mm-hmm. within our first uh, term. Uh, we'll invest uh, approximately 37.4 million to replace that old lighting, uh, and we believe that will cut hospital power bills by about 73 million dollars over 15 years. Now, it's a small it's a small step, but again, when you look at the solar schools policy, you look at the uh, the lighting efficiencies in public hospitals, you can see. Uh, 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 an agenda there yeah. about energy consumption in the in the public sector and leading the way with innovative solutions. Um, we, we're happy to go further, but let's, let's take these uh, steps first. <laughs>
1: OK, I'm sorry, I sound impatient to no, you. No, <laughs> I, I no,
0: can, I can well understand uh, people's uh, impatience uh, to, to uh, after a period of uncertainty where the hostility towards renewable energy uh, has reached uh, new heights... Mm. Uh, where, where uh, the notion of a clean and affordable energy future is in jeopardy, that people want to uh, recover lost ground and yep. to, to move more swiftly. I understand that. Yep. Um, but we do have to make sure that the changes we make are sustainable. And uh, while these proposals may seem modest, uh, I think this is the first time a major political party has put these issues on the agenda at an election campaign. Um, and that's a big step. Um, but we're happy to, to look at more ambitious horizons if we can get these things uh, achieved.
1: Well, I'm glad you are, have it on the agenda because there's been a lot of public pressure
6: to get this far. I want your I
2: want
4: love.
6: Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3CR.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your, your love, 3CR. 3CR.
1: Now let's move from renewables to fossil fuels, because that's the other side of your portfolio, isn't it, Um, energy. Mm -hmm. A lot of New South Wales electorates, I think, are sort of even swinging on this issue. This is really the key one for them. They feel defeated by the parliament, continuing to approve new mines and extensions of mines and coal seam gas drilling. Um, Rio Tinto's Walkworth mine, I was at the Supreme Court. I sat there and they won there, they won in the court and then the laws were changed and the Rio Tinto can go on and apparently the whole town of Bolga have to be moved and people are appalled. I've interviewed many people about it and also coal seam gas on farmland mm-hmm. you know we're all very aware of it and has now risen to the surface as being you know like a big election issue I think in New South Wales. People of Gloucester for example their water supply is endangered if the coal seam gas goes on. So do you have anything new to offer on this area which is very contentious?
0: Well yes, Um, since 2011 the Labor Party policy on coal seam gas has uh, has been quite clear. Um, we, we understand the dangers of CSG. Uh, we also understand that uh, both the current and the former government got it wrong. Um, the former Labor government made mistakes uh, renewing or providing licences where they shouldn't have. Uh, but we also believe the current government has got it wrong and that for all their posturing um, that they will uh, let CSG rip mm-hmm. after this election. Um, their gas plan says as much. Uh, The Premier in the Daily Telegraph on the 8th of November last year said, do we want coal seam gas? Absolutely, we do. Um, Well, the Labor Party uh, at this election and for the last three years has had a very clear and consistent policy. Firstly, there will be an immediate statewide moratorium on all coal seam gas exploration. We will suspend all existing coal seam gas exploration licences by law if necessary. That's the first thing. The moratorium will be that means there will be no new licenses issued, there will be no new extraction licenses issued, mm. uh, any licenses that come up for renewal will be allowed to lapse, no existing operations will be approved for expansion. Um, we are committed to full implementation of each of the recommendations of the New South Wales Chief Scientist and Engineer in her final report on CSG in September last year. She sets out a pretty substantial body of work that, um, uh, if if properly implemented, will inform us whether CSG can be operated safely in this state. Um, so uh, we say the pause button needs to be pressed until that work is done, and the uh, moratorium will not be lifted unless the industry can be scientifically proven to be safe. So that's the first point. The second point is we have announced a number of permanent no-go areas that, irrespective Mm. of the implementation of the Chief Scientist Report, there are Mm. areas where we just know that you should not, cannot uh, take any risks of of any coal, seam gas exploration or drilling. And they are very clearly worth the north coast of New South Wales. uh, We've made that clear. Uh, The special areas of the Sydney water catchment, Um, they will be permanently no-goes. We will also put a two kilometre buffer around all urban and residential areas, both above and below ground. There will also be a two kilometre buffer around every national park and a two kilometre buffer around Ramsar listed uh, wetlands.
1: What about farmland?
0: Uh, well, we think the residential situation will take care of that because most farmlands do have residences on them. But the important thing is the moratorium, which is permanent. What hasn't been done in this state is the aquifers and water tables have not been properly mapped. No. That needs to be done because we need to know where uh, where those waters are. Well, that's because really
1: interesting. Is that, what, is that planned to, to is, explore that?
0: Yes, well, certainly yeah, we don't think you can have any possible contemplation of uh, of expanding the CSG industry yeah. until you know uh, where all the water is yeah. so we think those things are very important um, and those things uh, will be done. by the government.
1: Can I bring you back to the coal mines uh, Whitehaven Coal for example up at Narrabri they're, mm-hmm. you know very high profile we've interviewed all the people up there and they've now just sent in the bulldozers mm-hmm. and they're pulling that forest down. And one of the people, it was very poignant, he said, um, uh, we think it'll be a great pity that just as they've got this mine up and going, they'll go bankrupt. That was his prediction, you know, because coal is really going downhill at the moment. So,
0: coal coal is cyclical. Um, There has been booms and busts uh, in the coal industry. What we say is, look, we're not about to close down the coal industry. Uh, Coal remains an important export for this country. It remains an important employer and particularly an important regional employer. But even in the Hunter Valley, for example, where coal has had a long and proud history, uh, the local economy is diversifying. Uh, People are recognising that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And that's why it's vitally important to grow renewables as a greater proportion of the overall energy mix uh, to make renewable (laughs) energy consistent, reliable and available on a much larger volume than Mm. it is today, I think, I personally think the tipping point will be the issue of storage. Once battery storage uh, Ah. is solved, once it becomes cost effective or at least more readily available, Mm. I think that will be the tipping point for a much uh, wider and more ambitious discussion in society about the kind of sources of energy that we are prepared to to pursue yeah um but uh that that is a longer conversation when that
1: happens okay well thank you for being so frank i i just suppose i didn't expect you to say you'd close down the coal industry but in terms of climate change that is what a lot of international opinion is forcing us to think about and uh, we've had lots of economists here saying that it is on the way out anyway but we, we're not here to debate that here. No, and but
0: what, we, what we can say is that we will through COAG initial, uh, initiate a national framework for the decommissioning of obsolete coal generation plants. This was Something that was discussed when Mr. Rudd was the Prime Minister. Yes. But what happened was the industry got a bit greedy. They wanted too much money for decommissioning. And so what you see is where, um, obviously, over the life of coal fired plants, they become less and less efficient to the point yeah. where you're putting in more, you know, almost as much energy as you're taking out. Yeah. And they reach a point where it's just not viable. Uh, and what has been happening is that operators are mothballing. Yes. Uh, inverted commas, uh, uh, these these power stations, rather than proper decommissioning, because yep. decommissioning carries with it a whole range of obligations that are, are are not engaged by mere mothballing. So we think this needs to be a national discussion um, to properly address the issue. Uh, nationwide,
1: It's an urgent, urgent responsibility. I, I just read yesterday that disused coal mines are a blight in New South Wales. There's 573 derelict mm-hmm. ones. They're not being rehabilitated. And apparently they just become saline water sinks. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. But, you know, it's a huge problem. And, and really the company should pay, you know, to who exploit the coal, I think. But look, I just last... You mentioned the um, mothballing of mines. I've been in the Hunter Valley. I've read the papers there. There's a lot of unemployment there, people being put off. So at the moment, you know, coal jobs are not so good. What blueprint, you as a Labor Party, do you have for a transition to a clean, cleaner energy or a renewable energy, energy revolution future? Do you have a transition plan for those workers, for coal-fired power workers, you know, they're skilled workers, they don't want to be mothballed. They need a like a, a game plan. Do you have some well, projects for them? Well,
0: not not explicitly. What we think is that this is a, a situation that the market needs to deal with as we trend you know, as we grow renewables as a much greater proportion of the energy supply. Um, as uh, and you look at the Hunter Valley, where you can see the economy already evolving and diversifying into, you know, wine making, tourism, uh, food tours. Uh, there's actually a very interesting uh, 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 what do you call uh, uh, the Newcastle Institute for Energy Research, where we're going to invest ten million dollars into. Uh, uh, clean energy storage. Uh, we're going to s- establish the, the Hunter as a region for... Uh, re- as a renewable energy hub. And we're also going to provide some investment uh, for local for a for, uh, Hunter Clean Technology Innovation Task Force and also up to $2 million to ensure that the Hunter TAFE can train workers in industries uh, of the future. Um, so we, we are taking the first tentative steps yes. to the transition of the kind that you've discussed uh, yes. in the Hunter Valley. Um, obviously, um, if, we, uh, if, if that proves viable, that is a blueprint that could be adopted uh, more broadly yeah. um, uh, for coal-affected areas. But uh, we think uh, it's that tipping point. You need the battery storage, you need to get renewable energy to a volume where uh, it, it, there is an accumulation yeah. that comes with a tipping point. And we think exceeding the twenty percent target would be that tipping point. Um, and uh, as as I indicated earlier, while uh, many of us, including myself, might wish to be more ambitious, mm. uh, the time for that ambition is post twenty yeah. twenty. Once we show we can and have got to, or even exceeded the twenty percent target. Fantastic! Thank years you.
1: Away. Thank you very much. That's. Ending on an upbeat, thank you very much. We've been speaking to Adam Searle, who is from the ALP in New South Wales just before the election.
2: Mike Baird uh, told Fairfax Media today that this is the most important New South Wales election in the 21st century. (laughs) We agree with him. (laughs) But at that point, the sense of accord comes to an end. Because for the Liberals and Nationals, this election is about one thing. It's about selling the heart of the electricity industry, passing the control over the future of our energy to large corporations and running around the state with $20 billion, mostly in marginal seats, trying to win the election. For Labor, it seems to be this election is about re-announcing our policies, or watered-down versions of them. (laughs) And then on coal seam gas, on coal, on TAFE, uh, uh, on corruption, and then, of course, getting them wrong, or backflipping on them. (laughs) For us, this election is very different. It's about standing up to the powerful vested interests. It's about making sure that every household and every community is part of the 21st century economy and has the opportunities for jobs and to participate. It's also about transforming that economy to be sustainable, to be jobs rich, and to save the planet and to make sure that we share the wealth as we make that that transformation so that everybody is part of that transformation. And we can and we must do this without selling the electricity industry because the corporations who would pay billions of dollars to buy the wires and Poles will not be interested in reconfiguring our networks to suit renewable energy. They will not be interested. They will not be interested in encouraging local generation and energy efficiency and they will not be interested in facilitating communities and households taking control of their own energy future. Make no mistake, one day New South Wales will be 100% renewable. We will see an end of coal and we will see an end of gas. The question is not if, but when. And the sooner we do it, the more rapidly we make that transition, the more we take control of that transition, the more jobs we generate here in New South Wales, the more opportunity we have to become world leaders and the exporting nation for renewable energy and the solutions that the world will so desperately need. The big question then is do we do it on our own timetable? Do we do it in a way that maximises jobs in New South Wales? Do we do it in a way that reduces the impacts on human health and on the environment as rapidly as possible? Or do we hand over the very heart of our electricity industry to private corporations who will have no interest in that transformation and who will do everything they can to stop it happening. Mm. The Greens are committed to stopping the privatisation of the electricity industry, just as we are committed to stopping, to, to causing, not stopping, to causing 100% renewable energy to happen as quickly as possible. We stood up to Labor's privatisation of the retailers and of the output of the generators, and we will continue to stand up to the Baird government's attempt to sell off our electricity future. We need to sell the electricity industry to raise $20 billion to pay for that transformation to a new, sustainable and fair economy. This election we have comprehensively exposed the old parties and their flimsy excuse for the sell-off. We have shown that we governments can raise $20 billion and pay for those borrowings out of revenue that would come from standing up to the big end of town. Taxing property speculators when they sell their properties for profit. Yeah, yeah. Increasing the, the tax on poker machines in the very profitable clubs. And continuing with the stamp duties on the transactions of the very large corporations. These are such radical policies that former Treasurer Michael Egan actually implemented them. <laughs> only to be backstabbed by Maurice Yemmer when he became Premier. So we show that we can raise that $20 billion by standing up to the vested interests. We can spend as much as as the Coalition would spend and much more than Labor would spend. But what we do say is today we can show that we spend it on things which really work for the economy. Not on West Connects, which will become inevitably a slow-moving parking lot. But I don't think that people stuck in that parking lot will be singing the praises of Duncan Gay and the National Party when they're caught there. What we show is that we're prepared to spend $4.5 billion on public hospitals and schools, $6 billion on the transformation to renewables, and as Jenny pointed out earlier on, $4.5 billion on making houses affordable. Today I announce, and I'm proud to announce, that we're going to spend $2.75 billion of that $20 billion on creating new opportunities in communities which for far too long have struggled under the dead hand of unemployment. The communities for which trickle-down economics has not worked. The communities which have been left behind by the markets and the boom-bust property market in Sydney, the communities for whom governments have never shown any real commitment. With that $2.75 billion directed to local government to to invest directly in new local infrastructure, building new new preschools and childcare, building new uh, bridges, building new opportunities for people to have engaged in meaningful work, including childcare centres, including making sure that every local community has appropriate water and sewage and stormwater infrastructure, including Aboriginal communities. We would provide those funds with the proviso that every local government employs people who have been on the dole queue for far too long or are young and job seekers. For far too long, this nation, this state, has accepted intergenerational unemployment and youth unemployment at levels which are destructive to communities and destructive to individuals. We say today, let us bring that to an end by investing real money in those communities, not just to generate jobs, not just to build new infrastructure, but to kickstart local economies that have been left behind. guarantee that every every young job seeker and every re-entrant job seeker has access to quality training, at a TAFE college, at a local TAFE college near them. It an ambitious program, but it can be achieved. And it can be achieved if we do three critical things. The first is, there can be no jobs future in the 21st century for New South Wales without a buoyant and optimistic TAFE system. That's why we've announced another $900 million each year to TAFE into their budget, into their secure budget, and to protect them from competition. That's why we want to make TAFE free again and we have the money to do it. We will bring to an end the competition policies that have devastated public sector education, particularly TAFE. It also needs, as Jamie said, governments which are free of corruption. Because where governments operate, through influence peddling, under the dead hand of donations, where you have politicians with their hands in the till, we can be guaranteed that decisions will not be made in the best interest of the environment the best interests of the community or the best interests of the future of the state. That's why in the next parliament I'm looking forward to supporting Jamie Parker's legislation in getting it through both houses and once and for all cleaning up the state. It needs politicians who are prepared to stand up to the wealthy voices, the loud voices, the vested interests that seek to enrich themselves at the expense of the environment and at the expense of the community. It's about standing up to the property developers. It's about standing up to the wealthy clubs that make billions of dollars out of problem gamblers. It's about standing up to the private, private colleges that are circling around our TAFE system seeking to destroy it. It's about standing up to the fossil fuel industry and making sure that they can't rob our environment and destroy our climate. Mike Baird is right. This is a critical 21st century election. It's about who gets to make the decisions about our future. It's about where the wealth gets distributed. It's about creating jobs in a clean, green economy. It's about making sure that every person in New South Wales can be part of the wealth that will be generated by the transition to a clean, innovative, high-tech economy. There is a vision for a clean, sustainable, jobs-rich, fair economy. That vision is not a pipe dream. It can be a reality.
6: Uh, and that was John Kane, the Greens New South Wales member for the Upper House.
7: This is the biggest story in the world.
8: We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were
7: we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people. And this is a story about possibility. The story the editor-in-chief, Alan Rusbridger, has chosen as his last big hurrah. You can't imagine a bigger story. His final legacy before he stands down as leader of the newspaper after two decades in charge. It's a story that affects us all. I mean, our children's children will be staggered at our
9: idiocy. It's clearly the most important story that we could be thinking about, and yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. It is
7: the story. And for this podcast, this particular story starts.
10: On Christmas Eve, when Alan Rusbridger sent out an email to a number of people...
7: 20 colleagues or so. Uh, I think I got
1: round to reading my emails about 10 o'clock while still packing presents he wanted to do one last really dramatic project before he finished being editor-in-chief of the paper.
7: Alan had been at home.
9: Uh, Settling into a comfortable armchair next to my log fire, burning carbon.
7: I
1: wondered why he wasn't packing Christmas presents (laughs) and whether Lindsay was doing it all for him.
9: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> His email went... Colleagues, this time next year, I won't be the editor of The Guardian. Indeed, well before that, I'll have stepped down.
10: He another- told a interesting story about having been, been speaking to Gordon Brown
9: when he was Prime and Minister. Knows the we made. We international- and I could tell that he was terribly depressed. I think he thought that he was going to lose deal, the general election.
10: Save- and asked him well you know actually you've been given a chance most people
9: would absolutely love you can be prime minister for a year you know imagine all the things you could do i tried to turn the conversation around to him and said but look gordon you've got a year left as prime minister many people that would be their
7: dream what are you going to do with that year i'm not at all depressed alan continued this is the right time to be moving on. But I do have an urge to do something powerful, focused and important with The Guardian while I'm still here. And it will be about climate change. It was clear that
9: it got, got the climate bug in a, in a big way.
7: Alan had caught climatitis, he said, in Sweden.
11: Oh, well, Alan and I were uh, in Stockholm in Sweden and we were there uh, oddly enough to get prizes Uh, this so-called right livelihood award they sometimes call the alternative Nobel.
9: I met um, Bill McKibben who is a campaigner former journalist for an organization called 350.org and Bill spends his whole life uh, campaigning on, on climate and we had lunch,
11: and it was an excellent luncheon.
9: I felt a bit guilty, as I always do, about our environment coverage, just because it's one of those things that, by the standards of other papers, you could say we do quite well, but I'm, I'm conscious that it slips off the agenda. I said, if you were going to do one thing, what would you do? So I told him. Look, you guys have done fantastic reporting on the environment, on science... But it's no longer an environment story. This is a story where the the science is settled uh, and it's now all about politics and economics. So if you don't mind me saying so, you're a bit old-fashioned in what you're doing. Bill's got a fantastic way of boiling the whole argument down to three facts which for someone who's not very good at numbers like me is very helpful leave it in the ground keep oil in
8: the soil and the coal in the hole that's bill's simple proposition the only way forward
6: you actually can't use the majority of the reserves that have been identified by fossil fuel companies
7: you have to keep it in the ground And as Bill would say, there's a simple math behind
5: it. There are really three numbers that you need to know to understand the argument. The first... Number one. ...is two degrees. That is the threshold for dangerous climate change. Uh, Really, that's the point at which the kinds of changes that we're seeing around the world will get, start to get
9: really nasty. The second figure is... Wait, hold up.
7: Why two degrees?
4: Two degrees is... Well, it, the two degrees is... The history of the two degrees target is...
11: Two degrees is one of those fraught numbers. Well, two degrees is a pretty arbitrary target. It's a political construct. Emerged in the 1990s as scientists were first trying to understand exactly where the thresholds were with climate change.
12: I mean, it is by no means an ideal one because two degrees of warming is likely to do... awful lot of harm to a lot of people in a lot of places
11: the trouble is we're on a pathway at the moment and the way we're emitting carbon now the way we're burning coal and gas and oil to raise the temperature four or five degrees centigrade this century
12: that's this century it doesn't stop at 2100 when you consider that the difference between today and the last ice age is four degrees I mean, this is
5: not about polar bears. This is about real effects on human beings. We're talking about water scarcity. We're talking about food scarcity. Many
12: parts of the world are likely to become uninhabitable, unfarmable. There'd be too much water in some places, too little water in others. So we might, you know,
10: set something in motion which eventually would destroy New York City, would destroy London, would destroy most of the world's great cities. Perhaps the... The neatest summary is from a man called John Shellin, and he said the difference between 2 degrees centigrade and 4 degrees centigrade warming is civilization. The, the second figure is 565
5: gigatons.
7: I'll say that again. Number two, 565
5: gigatons. Now that's the amount of carbon dioxide that we can safely release into the atmosphere and still have a reasonable chance of staying below 2 degrees that is kind of a carbon budget if you like that is the amount that we have to stick to or try to
7: before things start getting really bad we just get to release 565 more gigatons of carbon dioxide that's it Any more, and we're in danger of going over two degrees but guess what?
5: The third number, number three, and this is kind of the scary number, is 2,795 gigatons. Now that's the amount of carbon dioxide that would be released if all of the fossil fuel reserves that we know about already were dug up and burned. The the amount of carbon that is the basis for the value of all the big oil companies that are already there, and, and of course that value is based on the assumption that all of that carbon is going to get burned Uh, you will have noticed that 2795 is a lot bigger than 565 in fact about five times more and so the real challenge here is how do we keep that amount of carbon in the ground leave it on the ground one last point and that is that we're spending billions looking for new reserves going to very often very difficult places to dig up fossil reserves in the arctic Trying to extract tar sands in Canada, even at a time when we've got far too much that we can burn already. so there, there is a real sort of intellectual disconnect there.
9: Bill's simple proposition and his urgent plea was this stuff has to be kept in the ground, it cannot be dug up. Uh, and therefore if you want one focus for what the Guardian should do, it should be about keeping the stuff in the ground.
7: Keep it in the ground. The journalists kept reading. This is fantastic. Hearts beating. Great. Scrolling down.
8: I was absolutely delighted.
7: I thought it was really exciting. I thought it was something I wanted to be a part of. This
8: is the first time in my experience that any editor of any national paper anywhere in the world has taken climate change really seriously as a major issue and has understood it to be an existential problem, a literally a problem of, of existence.
1: This is something I've been passionate about for a long time. If the weight of The Guardian, uh, which is a really formidable, exciting
0: organisation, could swing behind this, we might actually manage to change the political
1: climate.
9: So, in the new year, I'd like a group of us, including those I'm copying this to, to meet and brainstorming what exactly we can do to have the most effect. I want the focus to be narrow and forceful. So, of course, there are numerous other angles, important angles, one could plausibly do. But I would like this to have a single focus, if we agree this is the right one. So, between now and then, firstly, if you have thoughts on how we might do this, please drop me a note over Christmas and New Year. Do you agree with the main focus, as proposed by McKibben? And secondly, I'm going to assemble a team to do this. Do you want to be in on it? It's obviously a bit urgent in more sense than one, but that's sometimes how we do our best work. So, see you in 2015, and apart from reading these pieces I've attached, have a great break. Alan.
5: I think I might have been a little too drunk to respond to that email at the time, but I did have a think of it over Christmas and uh, had a bit of time to read a couple of things to familiarise myself with books that I'd meant to read. Yeah, and
9: send him a response. Then, the cold
7: light of day.
9: The problem with this story, which is why journalism has, if we're honest about it, failed is that it's so big and it doesn't change much from day to day. So, what, you know, journalism is, is brilliant at capturing momentum or changes or things that are unusual. If it's basically the same story every day, every week, every year, then I, I think journalists lose heart. In some ways, I'm perhaps not the best person to ask, given that I've been
10: embedded in the existing narrative for, for the last six or seven years... Certainly this is something to which a lot of thought is given. Um, A lot of the narrative around climate change has been around catastrophe, disaster, drought, flood. I think that is an important place where a new narrative could be very useful, but it's been difficult to establish that new narrative.
12: We've been really bad at changing the story
10: where climate change is concerned.
12: We, We carry on flogging a load of dead horses and flogging them in exactly the same way with exactly the same whip and, you know, it doesn't work. And so we we just have constantly to be reinventing our storytelling capacity. It
8: may be reinventing the wheel for new audiences in the sense that there is very little of the journalism which hasn't been done. I mean we know we know what's going on in Africa. We know the science. We've faithfully been to every meeting. So in a way, it's a question of how do you present it in such a way as it as it is fresh and it gives new impetus to to um, to, to to a new generation of people. Um, because the the danger is that you know, everyone thinks, oh, we know about climate change, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reality is that we don't know
9: that much and we forget very, very quickly. So that's, that's the challenge. What can you do that lifts this beyond something that people are bored of reading about or can't bear to read about? What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention?
7: Some might say that Alan should have thought about this a while ago. He's had 20 years in power editing the paper. <laughs> now he's only got six months left. At last. <laughs> is it too little too late? And is there really a new story to tell? A golden bullet that will shake up the world? There is a remarkable similarity. I mean, the number
8: of world leaders who, when they leave office, suddenly become environmentalists is quite extraordinary. I've seen it happening around the world. Every every great prime minister becomes a uh, tries to become a, a, a great environmentalist.
7: But Alan, just six months—it's really quite
1: brave. <laughs> do you think you can do this?
9: Yeah, maybe maybe it's something you just do at the end of your editorship when it doesn't matter so much. He wanted it to be his valedictory campaign for the paper. I can't think of actually a a better campaign to go out on really i mean it is the story because on any on any reasonable analysis this is the most important story of our lifetime you know if you're actually talking about this being our final century uh, as a as a species and the and the, 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 what we do in the next 10 years could determine the future of the human race and so maybe at the end of that you think well who cares if we if we don't win this one? It's better to have tried, uh, and and really awful not to have tried.
7: If Alan and the team do this right, this could change the world. But if they don't, it could bring down the editor and the paper, hitting its reputation and maybe even its finances. We're letting you in.
6: And uh, that was a a short piece Vivian has brought you on Alan Rusbridger, who's, who is the editor-in-chief at The Guardian, the outgoing editor-in-chief at The Guardian. And The Guardian has put together a really great series of podcasts, which you can find on your podcast catcher by searching for the biggest story in the world. Uh, And if you've just listened to that piece, you'll make sense of why they've done that, though it's a very salient point uh, that Alan has maybe left too little too late at the end of a 20-year reign at the helm of The Guardian. So that brings us to the end of the show for tonight. Thanks uh, to the gang. So that's Miwa, Vivian, Glenn, uh, Roger, uh, Teddy for the wonderful promos that go out on Facebook every week. We'll be back again next Monday 5pm for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show.